everybody, and welcome to episode 20 of Praxis Pedagogy Podcast. It is Chad and myself's distinct honor to sit down and have a quick conversation with Dr. Rajiv Janjiani from Kwantlen Polytechnic University. Now, Rajiv is a recent KPU teaching fellow on open education at KPU. He currently serves as an associate editor of psychology, learning, and teaching, and as an ambassador for the Center for Open Science. He has previously served as an open education advisor and senior open education research and advocacy fellow with BC Campus, an OER research fellow with the Open Education Group, a faculty workshop facilitator with the Open Textbook Network, and the associate editor of Noba Psychology. Rajiv has received numerous awards and honors. He is a leading player in BC's open textbook movement through his work with BC Campus and KPU's groundbreaking Z-Cred, or what we call Z-Degree initiative, which you'll hear a lot about in this episode. This was a great episode for, for Chad and I just to sit down and chat with Rajiv. You'll notice that there's a few technical glitches here and there. We're working through some tech stuff on our side, so please be patient, and we thank you for your uh, your continued patience in, in us kind of fumbling our way through with what the what where the best tech can be found to help us deliver the best podcast we can make. So thanks again for listening, for taking the time to listen to uh, our conversation with Rajiv. One, welcome back everybody to Praxis Pedagogy Podcast. Here we are. We are trying some new tech today. So if it glitches and blops and does all that fun stuff on us, please be uh, uh, grace-filled, I guess you could be generous with your grace towards us. <laughs> Gracious. <laughs> As I'm stumbling across my words. Um, because we we probably have, Chad, you have to, you have to agree with this. Uh, you have to agree with this. Okay. We probably have the... <laughs> the Godfather, lead charge guy when it comes to OER, OEP, and and what's happening in in our little world in the province of British Columbia. Would you, would you not agree? Oh, definitely. I mean, he's one of the most influential people in my life. He's one of the people that got me um, into open. I don't know if I think I've mentioned this, Rajiv, that it was at BCIT probably about a year and a half ago. You were speaking, and I uh, connected with you there, and just I remember yeah, you yeah. talking about. Just talking about millennials and talking about how you're getting sick and tired of the people always talking down about millennials. And that was like, I need to talk more to this guy. So we kind of yeah, the millennial bashing. Yeah, oh. I love that you came up after that. I wish back then I had the OK Boomer retort. That would have been just perfect. That wasn't a thing yet at the time. But yeah, it's weird when you talk about the godfather heavens. I mean, first of all, we were talking about a field that is way too dominated by by masculine voices anyway, right? But sure. but yeah, maybe yeah. I maybe I shared a resource that you couldn't refuse. So maybe that was it. Yeah. yeah. So maybe we'll call it uh, you know one one of the founding people of the OER OEP movement in BC anyway. And uh, so it is a it is a pleasure to have you on the show, Rajiv. So. For those who may not know you, who have been, you know, out of the country for the last 10 years, <laughs> uh, maybe maybe you could just give us a, be a brief background on you and how you got into the OER world. Sure. And I, I, I totally disagree. I think there's tons of people who have no idea who I am, and I'm, hope, and I'm glad that they don't. Um, but I'm a guy. I mean, I, I, I'm a father. I have two boys. Um, I used to be a dancer. For 12 years, I was a psychology instructor. 
Um, I do some things in open. Uh, I've been doing more things in open over the last few years. Um, every year I seem to do a little bit more, but it began just very simply. Um, you know, in 2012, the BC Campus uh, Open Textbook Project launched, as you know, um, and at the time BC Campus put out a call for faculty who were interested in reviewing open textbooks. They just needed people to tell them how good these resources were. So um, I learned about them um, and I, I emailed Clint Lalonde, our great uh, friend at BC Campus, mm. to say, hey, you know, I see uh, one book on your list that, that I think is relevant for me in psych. And I found this other book that's not on your list, but hey, can I review that too? Um, great, no problem. So I reviewed and then uh, I kind of disappeared. And I was said, I remember sitting on a, on a little swing on my uh, on my deck in the summer of 2013, it was. Uh, and I found the Microsoft Word file of uh, one of those books. And I thought, okay, you know, sort of US edition, I can make some changes. The Canadian research ethics policies are different, this, that, and the other. Edited it over the course of a few weeks in the summer, adopted it. And at the end of the semester, I emailed Clint to say, hey, by the way, so this this is kind of where it went after the, after the review. And he was just like, oh my God, this actually happened. Um, and then so from there, just fell in deeper. So adapting the books, um, doing research to, to evaluate their efficacy and perceptions, um, starting to become more of an advocate. And then, of course, as the field's focus uh, uh, widened also from resources to practices, uh, been spending much more time in recent years looking at um, and exploring and pushing the boundaries of open pedagogy. Um, and then in particular, I suppose, uh, over the last three, four years uh, in, in increasing capacities at uh, my institution, Wantlin Polytechnic University, um, shepherding the open education initiatives. Um, so that's sort of it in a nutshell. But most important stuff, my father, I'm a cricket fan, I'm a former dancer, I'm a ukuleleist, um, and I'm really, really thrilled to be chatting with you too. <laughs> and you're an OER songwriter as well. That's true. Yeah, we do that. We have to get the jam session together, right? I mean, yeah, we need to talk about I, it. <laughs> Chad's like my my my, tr my preview uh, guy. I, I bounce these ideas off him before I experiment in public. <laughs> <laughs> well, the last one. Speaking of that experimentation, that last one worked out pretty well for you at Digped Lab. You want to just kind of touch on what happened there? <laughs> well, that was fun. I mean, that's a different crew, right? So if you know Digital Pedagogy Lab, these are folks who I'm really, really drawn to because for me, open pedagogy draws on open licensing and OER, sure, but it also draws on critical pedagogy, which is very much uh, what the folks at DigiPed Lab tend to focus on. So um, this was a DigiPed Lab Toronto. So it's a satellite event, just three days. And I gave uh, a keynote on the first day, at the end of the first day. And I had some fun. I mean, I, I sorry, two songs, drew out my performing arts background. Uh, the first one, I rewrote the lyrics of uh, Simon and Garfunkel's Sound of Silence uh, and rewrote it as The Sound of Violence. And it was really an ode to the adjunct faculty member. Um, and then I closed with a, um, a tribute to the faculty at the Institute, uh, singing the, the um, ukulele version, Easy's version uh, of uh, Somewhere Over the Rainbow, um, and uh, what a wonderful world, but rewritten so that every stanza was, uh, every verse was a tribute to the different faculty and, and what they were doing at the Institute. So it was total fun. It was it was absolutely nonsensical, but uh, I was also really, really thrilled to be able to um, to, to share more personally, um, but I think also a little bit of modeling because with open pedagogy, we're constantly asking our students to do things that they're uncomfortable doing. So it was fun. So I was doing something I was not terribly comfortable doing. 
But then the whole audience, we, 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 they were drawing in the middle, doing an icon jam. Uh, we did a coordinated dance at the end. There, like 120 people were dancing in the room. It was pretty fun. Uh, but yeah, the ukulele part was certainly interesting. And you can't quite see it, but I have an ukulele here in my office as well. So I, I could potentially give you a bit of a, a preview of, of some of those uh, some of those drums. <laughs> I'm going to have to bring my guitar over. I'll run across the street there. We'll have a little impromptu jam session in the office. I can't quite reach it. I'm going to try. <laughs> That's too bad. My drum kit isn't portable. Three of us. Oh, he did little, it. Uh, oh, he, uh, he For got those it. Just can't about. see the podcast. Rajiv Jangiani has just grabbed his <laughs> ukulele off the wall and yep. we're getting an impromptu. This, this podcast has just gone off the rails, everybody. It's, uh, we are three minutes in and it is already off the rails. Any excuse whatsoever. Nice. Nice. Oh, that's well, awesome. Don't, don't, don't put that away too far. We might uh, get you to whip it out and play on it a little bit there. Rajiv, when you started looking at the OER stuff, um, I'm sure you had a philosophy of education being in the, in the psych department and, and how you taught. Did your exposure to OER change your philosophy or did it just add to it? No, I mean, I think it's interesting because when I think about OER, even when I talk to colleagues about it, and this goes back years, it so quickly becomes not a not a discussion about a textbook or a resource. It becomes a discussion about teaching philosophy. So it's mm-hmm. like you know, if how what do you even think of uh, textbooks? How do you see them? Is that your primary sort of vehicle for content delivery, or is it just augmenting what you're doing in the classroom? Because if it's augmenting, nobody gives a, you know a blank, and you could swap one for the other, and it's not really going to matter. Um, so I think, yeah, it becomes a question about that. But for me, it was kind of happening at the same time because psychology has been in an interesting, fun kind of space for the last few years. Uh, I don't know if you've heard, but we've been going through a bit of a replicability crisis where many classic findings in the field have been challenged. Turns out the original hmm. research was not especially rigorous. And there's all kinds of publication biases in the field where you sort of are incentivized to conduct and publish um, what is sort of flashy, sexy, but non-reproducible findings instead right. of hmm. the more careful, iterative, programmatic research. Um, and, you know, the upshot of this is the field has been pivoting. Say, you know what? We can't trust this stuff. Um, let's think about our methodology. And so there's been a shift towards open science practices. So things right. like let's pre-register our hypotheses um, so we can't, you know, hypothesize after we know the results. Let's right. share our data openly <laughs> because we've had a few high profile cases of data pa- fabrication. So if you share your data openly, that's harder to get away with. Things like that. Uh, and then also on the software side, we've moved away from, you know, SPSS, a very expensive software from IBM that went up, you know, several hundred percent in a single year to open source software like R. So for me, it's been a fun space to, to, to think about, you know, open education at the same time as the field has been aggressively thinking about open science and open source software. Um, so so I think those broader changes probably were part of my 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 sort of deliberations or part of what was um, permeating my, my consciousness at the time. But I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, for me, um, access is a huge thing. And, and when you learn about the, the issue of access and how bad it can be and how different the plight of students today is from, from what many of when, when, when many of us were students. Um, and I think the only other piece is, is for me is that when we when open education, when we talk about this notion of, you know, access and and education as this transformative tool for, for people's lives, that's not a theoretical concept for me because that was my out in the world. That's what that give, that's what allowed me to find a place when I didn't have a home, I didn't have a roof, I didn't have a family business to fall back on, I lost my father. All of these things happened, mm-hmm. and it was just 
I got to figure this out. And education was there for me. Um, and, you know, so so it's a very personal thing for me if, the, if that possibility disappears for students because of affordability. Mm-hmm. Guantlin's doing quite a bit with that. I, from Can you speak a little bit about the Zed Cred program? Like you guys are being pioneers within that industry and it's just, it yeah, seems to be sure. pretty exciting what's going on. Yeah, well, you know, Quantlin's an amazing place to work and, and full credit. I mean, the idea didn't come from us, uh, certainly in the U.S. Tidewater Community College is the one that pioneered mm-hmm. uh, what we now call the ZTC or Zero Textbook Cost Program. But yeah, we, we were the first to get there in Canada, um, but that's because we've been the leading adopter of open textbooks for, well, since 2012. The first recorded adoption in the province was our physics department here at KPU. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, we launched our first ZTC program. It's a one-year program two years ago. And between then and now, we've launched many more. So we've got the Certificate of Arts. We've got a Certificate in Foundations in Design. Uh, we've got the BC Adult Graduation Diploma. We've got the Associate of Arts degree in, in Sociology and General Studies. And most recently, the uh, Bachelor of Arts degree in General Studies. So, yeah, over 700 courses with zero textbook costs for students, $3.1 million in savings, You know, more than 300 faculty actively involved. Uh, we support this stuff through... Um, grants for adoption, for adaptation, for creation, range of open pedagogies, open pedagogy fellowships, open educational research fellowships, and a training institute coming up next year. This stuff is, I mean, it's deep. It's its woven into our academic plan. Um, mm-hmm. It's in our policies, in our intellectual property policy, in our procedures, um, like in course development procedures, and in our, in, our, in our practices, like textbook ordering, for example. So, yeah, I mean, KPU is taking this very, very seriously. Um, and, and I think we've now... Cannonball! So are you, are you teaching anymore, Rajiv, or are you fully released to do your vice provost uh, activities? I'm teaching Rajiv a lot. Um... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow. Wow. Well, that's a, so it's sort of a fresh thing. A couple of years ago, yeah. there was a teaching fellow position that gave me a 50% release. Um, mm-hmm. And then, of course, as as you know, I mean, it really just takes institutions investing in the time to allow staff mm-hmm. to do what's necessary. So things absolutely took off. That was the year we launched our first TC programs and all of that. Um, and then, yeah, as of this May, I've moved into this administrative role. So I'm not teaching students in, in uh, the classrooms I used to, at least right now. I am, of course, doing quite a bit of faculty development around open pedagogy and OER. I'm certainly working with students a lot, um, but yeah, I'm not teaching psych at the moment. Okay, okay. When were you using any OER stuff when you were teaching in uh, in the psych department? Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, I mean, I adapted a couple of open textbooks for research methods for social psych, worked on stuff for intro psych, and so for all of those courses and a couple of others. Um, yeah, I was heavily using open textbooks and other mm-hmm. resources like the FET interactive simulations, you know, openly licensed YouTube clips, all kinds of things. But yeah. Mm. Now I know that there's a plethora of strategy out there when it comes to using OER and, and developing your own OEP. Um, but do you find yourself coming back to several strategies that are just your go-to, whether you're doing it yourself or whether you're encouraging others to uh, adopt an OER stance? I don't know. I mean, I think it obviously it depends. And if you, are you working in an area where you're sort of flush with OER, like psychology or, or 
physics mm-hmm. or math or something, or are you dealing with an area where it's pretty sparse or upper level courses where there's not much to begin with anyway, even in commercial resources? Um, are you dealing with a new faculty member or, an, or one who's close to retirement or someone in the middle? You know, are you dealing with someone who um, is interested in really doing innovative stuff versus someone who's just interested in, in you know, treating OER the same that they would treat commercial resources to save student money? Right. Yeah. So for me, you know, the strategy is, is really about meeting people where they are. Um, that's most of it. Uh, and then, you know, obviously sharing ideas, sharing options, talking through uh, what's possible. Um, in some ways, I see it as my job now that if someone's interested, um, my job is to figure out how to get the barriers out of the way. You know, it mm-hmm. could be time, it could be money, it could be expertise, it could be training, it could be platforms, it could be uh, absence of collaborators, peer reviewers, you know, whatever, recognition. That's my that's my problem, right? So, um, but beyond meeting people where they are, I think the other big thing is just the academic freedom piece is, is you know, I think the big strategy for me is never mandate this stuff. Just, mm-hmm. this is something. And if you're interested in doing it, of course, I'm happy to support you. But I'll meet you where you are and we'll do it in the way you want. So, and, and for me, you know, once people play in this space, I don't really need to advocate for it. They become advocates for it uh, among their peers. Um, it sort of grows organically. Uh, certainly you don't get to 700 plus ZTC courses without quite a lot of organic growth. Yeah. Now, with that, how would you, for somebody who's grassroots, say you've got an instructor who's using OER and then finally as a lot of us have found out that it's a gateway into OEP and open pedagogy. And then you talk about how Quantlin is very much, they've got a mandate for open now. It's become part of the policy. Like, what are those steps? Like, I know they're obviously gigantic steps, but how can you have a faculty member help try to produce that policy? You know what I mean? Trying to get it into a more of a, to take it from grassroots up to, because we need, we need to come from top down sometimes as well, right? We need to have our deans, our associate deans, and the governing body behind our schools buy into this. How do we get, how do we become a KPU in that sense? Well, I mean, KPU is unique. First of all, I mean, I think there's there's institutional identity aspects anyway. We're access oriented, right? Open access, serving the community. We're teaching focus. And that's part of the DNA anyway. That, that, mm-hmm. that influences things like self-selection of who comes to work here in the first place. That aside for a moment, um, it's a dance, right? So I'm going to speak as a, as a former dancer over here. You think about the choreography over here of this interesting dance. Who's leading the dance, right? So, so yes, there's a dance between the grassroots interest and the grass top support, if you will. But it's the grassroots that leads in this dance. That's what happens. Mm. So, you know, it's it's not mandated in any way. And even yes, we do have open ed in our academic plan. We have it in our IP procedure, sure. But for me, the best policy in an institution like mine is a policy that codifies existing practice. It's not a policy that tries to enforce uh, a right. practice. Yeah, I guess that's just is just trying to create a culture of it, right? Yeah, where you've got the other instructors who have not bought in but are participating in the dance as well, and then people start getting more interested in that dance, and then they can kind of move on from there. Yeah, yeah, and I don't know if you've seen that YouTube clip, but I mean, you know, seven eight years ago, you might have felt like that lone guy on the on the sort of. Um, you know, on the hill in the middle of a large gaggle of people, and it's the lone guy who's dancing on him by himself. It, it, people look at him as a little bit strange, and nobody else is dancing. But I mean, you know, yeah, it is about culture change. It is about starting that movement. But part of that is also, you know, I think increasingly it's not a question of trying to persuade people to do something. It's 
helping them reconnect with why we got into this business in the first place. Right. right? right. So it's, it's not getting lost in the weeds. It's, yeah, we can really get caught up in, oh, I'm dealing with this academic dishonesty, this, I'm dealing with this increasing administrative burden there, I'm dealing with, you know, um, whatever you're dealing with. But no, it's about, you see the transformation, you see how mm. you're serving students, you see how much it matters to them. Um, and suddenly it's like, yes, it's not, it's not, you're not doing this to avoid something. You're doing this to approach something. Right. And there's a psychology reference view because it's not an uh, avoidance motivation. It's an approach motivation. And I think when you hit that point where it's, so it's not judgment driven, it's not guilt driven. This is aspirational stuff. And that when you get into that space, then you're talking real culture change. Right. Yeah. I, think, I think, sorry, Chad. Oh, no, go, go ahead. ahead. <laughs> well, I was just going to say, and one thing that I noticed having been, I mean, I'm into open pedagogy now for two years, is sometimes you feel like you're alone in your own institution. But the nice thing now with the connectedness is you're not alone, right? Like I reach out to you, Rajiv, and we had lunch and then we've been building a relationship from there. I've reached out to other people on, on Twitter. People reach out to me. It's, it's nice to know that you're not alone in this space and that this dance is happening, but it can happen cross institution. It doesn't have to happen just on your own. So... I'm finding it's just it's brilliant that way to be able to reach out to others and to be able to talk with them and to dance with them and kind of ex experience this whole brilliance of open pedagogy together. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it, and it's not just with open pedagogy as well. I mean, I think that's part of the fun with OER stuff is, I mean, so often you'll find that the people who are leading in this direction are maybe like there are a couple of people in a department of uh, 20, let's say, and by themselves, they, they don't feel like they have the support, the interest, the ability, the time to do what they really do want to do. So the interest mm -hmm. is there. But then, you know, you connect them with faculty in the same discipline yeah, across another institution. Yeah. And, and then suddenly it becomes a bigger thing. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think collaboration is one of the fun, most entertaining things about this space. And interestingly, uh, you know, many people have said this, but even though institutions compete in many ways, right, for students, for rankings or whatever other mm. nonsense the neoliberal university wants us to fight over, um, it's, it's really just, this is a space where, you know what, if BCIT moves forward and, and does well and produces OER and open textbooks, we're going to reuse them here. When, yep. when we implement a new practice, you're going to pick it up over there. So this is a space where, you know, individual institutional success really supports collective institutional progress. Mm -hmm. And so collaboration for me is one of the big, big uh, ingredients that we need to, to, to play with. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned that because, you know, I was going to pick up on the metaphor that you're using of a dance. And I... And, being a systems thinker, I like to stand up on the balcony and watch the whole dance floor and you can see different people dancing in different ways, uh, sometimes to the same tune, maybe to a different tune in their head, whatever you have there. But I'm, I'm also very curious to know how, how we can connect, uh, for lack of a better term, the power that I've seen in different different aspects of open. So you, you, you have a, this whole spectrum of open from right from people who are just dangling their toes in the water to people who have been in it for years and who are massive advocates and have lots of uh, background and, and, and lots of credibility in, in doing what they've been doing. And, you know, you have critical and non-critical and you just have people that just want to do it for, for whatever reason that they're doing it for. And I'm, and I'm trying to put my head around the idea, how do you, how do you harness this? Or maybe step back and ask the question, should it be harnessed? Because this last conference that we were at, there was a lot of questions coming up, you know, who owns it? 
Where where is it going to go? Uh, are we a movement? Are we a coalition? Are we collaborators? And there was lots of chatter back and forth, and I kind of know where I sit. Um, but I'm wondering is is it even worthwhile thinking about how to harness this into a particular piece, or do we just let it go and see what what emerges? These are big questions. I feel like I really need a cup of coffee to go over them. <laughs> but it's an interesting question. I mean, I, I think there's been so much rhetoric, right? I mean, so much grandstanding in this space. But I have to confess, I, I'm, I'm, you know, maybe foolish in in this respect. But I am so fiercely optimistic, and I've never been as optimistic as I am today about the future of the open education movement, uh, if you want to call it a movement. Uh, it's bigger than it's ever been. Um, mm-hmm. It's becoming institutionalized in ways it has mm-hmm. never been before. Uh, I mean, you know, five years ago, if you said, hey, you know, this thing, there's going to be this position that's not uncommon, that's called OER librarian, people would have looked at you like, you, like you're nuts. Um, this is a thing now. My position mm-hmm. is a thing now. It, mm-hmm. it is part, I mean, of UBC, for heaven's sake. I mean, I'm an alumnus of, of UBC. If you told me, you know, when I was a grad student over there that, hey, you know what? The creation of OER is going to be part of the tenure and, pro- tenure and promotion uh, criteria under educational yeah. leadership. I would have laughed you out of the room uh, knowing the UBC culture when I was a student there. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, for me, it is bigger. It is more people, more diverse uh, constituents than ever before. And for me, this is a really, really good thing. But it also means that I think we need to, um, you know, we've been in this space long enough that we know that we're not going to limit the discussion. We're going to think critically about these things because we know now that we can do more harm than good if we run around thinking, hey, yeah, guess what, everyone? The marginal cost of reproduction of a resource that's digital is close to zero. So the digital is the solution, everyone. Yeah, but what about those kids who don't have broadband internet access yeah. at home? What about exactly. those learners who yeah. prefer to learn from print, right? Go home. Uh, or, hey, guess what? We can subscribe to this wonderful platform that's coming from um, someone. Um, uh, and then, uh, of course, if you're in the U.S., you start to realize that you're mandating that students are being asked to leave a digital footprint. That means members of their family can be, in fact, deported from the country. Right. Yeah. Um, you yeah. start to think about data privacy. You start to think about accessibility. And, oh, great, I can create this OER and Pressbooks really quickly. I can create this, this H5P object. It's a really fancy, cool bell and whistle. Is it really accessible? Does that work with a screen reader? And I think, you know, mm-hmm. some people look at these questions as thinking, oh, my God, this is divisive. It's not divisive. This is nuanced. This is sophisticated. Mm-hmm. This is more mature. This is yeah. not just standing on, on the corner saying, everyone, this is a simple recipe. Textbook prices are high. OER are free. Therefore, you should adopt OER uncritically. I mean, that may have been a message of sorts uh, 15 years ago, but I think, you know, uh, we've certainly learned enough uh, not to do that. And I, and I think there's a lot of goodness that comes from being able to um, welcome uh, people into the community in a way that's not rose-tinted, in a way that uh, acknowledges limitations, areas we're still working on. But also points to where you know we could go if we really want to get this right, even if we're not there yet. And so I don't like the idea of foreclosing a conversation about where people might go until uh, mm-hmm. But I certainly want to have a very long tail of, you know, you can have a very low bar 
entry into this space, right? You want to just use a FET simulation as a supplementary resource. Stick with your commercial textbook. Don't change a thing about your teaching practice. Hey, you're in, right? Mm-hmm. Yo, that's open educational practice by itself. There's not much you need to do to do that, and you'll gain from that. Yeah. But you can go much, much further. So for me, having an extremely long tail, very low barriers for people to play in this space, but having uh, you know the the deeper end, the truly thoughtful and aspirational is really key. And so for me, we just elongated the swimming pool in a sense. We've got a very, very uh, easy entry point, uh, but you can go pretty deep if you want to. Yeah. And there's so many people that we can invite to this conversation and have these conversations and they can be as critical as they want or as they can just, it's like, Tim, you're always talking about how some people like to just dip their, their little tiny tip of their toe in and other people are jumping off the high board doing a deep dive, right? So cannonball. I think there's just so much to that. Yeah. The old cannonball. <laughs> And there's room for everybody. Yeah. yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, you think about swimming in that sense, right? Because it's an interesting analogy. I mean, you think about this, the, the social justice rhetoric, what we're talking about. Uh, yesterday I was on Twitter and I saw a photograph of um, Fred Rogers, you know, Mr. Rogers from mm-hmm. uh, Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. Um, this is back when you know there were laws uh, concerning segregation uh, of African Americans yeah. and white yeah. Americans are not allowed to swim in the same pool. And he just had this guy who was a, I think, a cop. I can't remember from where. Yeah, it was a police. Invited him to, yeah, uh, sit, uh, you know, with him and just put their feet into this little tiny little tub of water. And it was symbolic, but it was more than symbolic, right? So, yeah, yeah. there was an aspect of this as yeah, this is this is this is about you know having a welcoming environment for people to swim in that support it. Um, but part of it is also, you know, for a long time, there are people who've not been invited to this pool. Uh, mm-hmm. And in some cases, you know, it, it is a question of, you know, I don't want to be in that pool. Um, maybe I want to be in another pool. Or maybe for that matter, I don't even want to be in this restricted space. I want to swim in the ocean outside, for example. Mm-hmm. So it's an interesting space. And I think thinking about it critically is good because it pushes our practice. It, it keeps us honest. Um, so I wasn't at that conference. I'm curious. I mean, did you feel, uh, I mean, I, there was tension that I could see in, in discussions leading up to it online, but I didn't get a sense of how, whether, whether that actually permitted the conference itself. What was that like? You want me to go first? Sure. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I, I wasn't privy to all the back channel chatter that was going on, um, but I knew that some of it, I knew some of it was there. And when David Wiley stood up and gave his announcement at the beginning of the conference that at the end of it, it would adjourn. My yeah. initial reaction was, oh, you can't do this to me. <laughs> I just got <laughs> here. Not not just to the conference, but I'm I'm now, I use this conference as, as kind of like my final, okay, I'm all in. Like, I'm not 99%, I'm all in. And I, I, I'm excited to be there and I'm excited to learn. I'm excited to rub shoulders. And then you kind of get told, uh, yeah, this is the last time this is going to happen. And I'm like, no, you can't do that. But uh, as the conference went on, that that announcement actually helped me to cherish every one of those sessions that I went to that much more. Um, because of a piece of it was the nostalgia. Oh, I can't deny that. But there was also this sense of, okay, so where's this going to go? What's it going to evolve? Because I'm, I'm a systems and a leadership thinker by by heart. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, so this can't be picked up by one person. It's going to have to be picked up by several people. And where are those several people going to come from? And what's that 
what's that committee, for a lack of a better term, going to look like, and and how's it going to be populated, and who's it going to represent? And yeah. my mind just my mind just starts exploding. So, did I see any any uh, tension in the sessions? Uh, no. Although there was one session I was in where one uh, participant act asked a very uh, clear question uh, about uh, inclusiveness in the sense that this one panel was was uh, all women and the, and the project was all women not to disparage anything that you said and and to to do anything but just to say where is a as a male was there any room for us in this space and I thought you know that's a brave question to ask and he asked it in a really gentle caring manner and it wasn't condescending it wasn't pointing the finger um, and they took it as that. They took it as, you know, a, a genuine question and, and they answered it really well. And that was the, for me, that was the only point where I thought, okay, here we go. This might be a little contentious here, but it turned out to be really, really good. And it gave me hope that all that stuff that was going on in the side and in the back, um, which should be allowed to a certain degree, um, didn't, didn't spill into the conference and taint it. Now that's, and that's just my perspective. And, of course, I didn't go to every session, and I don't know everybody as deeply as other people do, but that's my perspective. Mm. Yeah, for me, I felt like there was the conversations. It, it felt like the air was let out of the room for a brief second when David made that announcement. And then all of a sudden, it was like this big breath that everybody took. And I think for the conversations that I had, there was a big sense of hope and excitement because it had grown beyond just one person's ideals. And had grown from a 30-person conference to over 900 people in a short amount of time, 16 years. So the conversations that I had and heard was that this is actually a great thing and that it's time to, to have these conversations with others and to build it. And so for me, I, I found it kind of, yeah, it was a little bit of a, a blow at the beginning, but then it was a quite an exciting thing to, to have conversations about. Yeah, that that's good to hear. It's interesting when you think about it, you feel like there's going to be maybe some discontinuity over here. But of course, you know, a 30-person conference, uh, you know, more than a decade ago versus what it was today is not really the same conference either. No, no, um, no, no. But I was chatting with, you know, I was chatting with George Siemens uh, over the last week about a conference that he established um, and that he stepped away from uh, because he wanted to also you know, uh, build capacity and leadership in that space. And that is a conference that has grown and matured and emerged. And when he went back to it after a few years, he was really, um, you know, thrilled with how that went. Mm. So and I do think there's something to be said for that. But I'll also share this. This is uh, something that one of my dearest friends in the open education space is, is uh, her name is Sarah Cohen. Uh, she uh, co-leads the massive open textbook network across the United States. They have more than a thousand member campuses in this beautiful collaborative community that absolutely puts students first. I mean, I can't, cannot say enough nice things about the OTN and Sarah. And, and Sarah told me about this message that she has um, on her desk. And, you know, um, and it's something that's helped me as well. And so I actually have this post-it next to me on my desk over here. And I'm going to hold this up. I don't know if you can read this. But this is a wonderful space for me to be in. Um, it's a space I try to be in. Mm -hmm. um, but it's a space that reminds me of how to approach this. So when you talk about the question that was asked gently and it was answered gently, it was a brave question, you say, but it was truthful, right? It was gentle, but it also required mm -hmm. courage. And so right. for me, I mean, this is why, you know, we're not talking about 
um, we're not talking about, I don't know, learning management systems or uh, learning outcomes or e-portfolios or something like that in education. Mm-hmm. You know, we're talking about a space which is deeply permeated by values. You know, we're thinking yeah. and talking about social justice quite explicitly over here. So it shouldn't be a surprise that, that that the people who care so much about social justice are deeply invested in the ideas of diversity and inclusion and equity. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, when you have that kind of discussion, of course, it, it, it requires truth, it requires gentleness, and it requires a degree of fearlessness. Yeah. Um, and so for me, Sarah's words uh, help guide me in this space. Powerful. <clears throat> Very powerful. Yeah, she's brilliant. She's amazing. Rajiv, are there are there a couple books that you would recommend to people to read to kind of help them broaden their experience or their mind, so to speak? Um, well, I'm thinking about one in particular. I think it's what is it? Trigonometry for electricians. <laughs> yeah. um, it's a brilliant, pretty book. good book. I mean, I, it's pretty well. It's a quick read. I don't know. It's a, little, it's a quick read. Quite inspiring, I hear. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, there's many things. I mean. Um, to begin i mean i think um i think for me going back to to the why of this work which goes back to the critical pedagogy piece because we can talk about open licensing and and open platforms Mm. and press books and all of that stuff but Mm. what's guiding this and so for me you know um look at some of the works by uh bell hooks look at pedagogy of the oppressed and frere had you know issues especially in terms of uh, how he represented and thought about women for example but you can draw on his work oh henry Giroux from uh from ontario master i mean heavens so i I think those are wonderful ones um even if you look at um uh, sean michael morris and jesse stommel wrote and published the urgency of teachers which is a collection Mm -hmm. of their essays coming from hybrid pedagogy in this space i mean these are uh people who really help push thinking for me in in many many ways um, uh, oh, and Sherry Spellich. Um, I'm just looking to see if I had her book over here. I'm not going to stop it at four. Sorry. I'm going to tell you um, <laughs> Algorithms of Oppression by Safia Noble. Uh, read A Race After Technology by Ruha Benjamin. Read Paying the Price by Sarah Goldrick Rab. Um, hmm. Heavens. I'm looking at my bookshelf right now. I'm totally cheating. Um, <laughs> there's no shortage of this stuff. Um, but I think also looking at stuff outside of the, the bubble. Um, I think one of the, the most important articles, it's not a book that has been published in the open ed um, space ever, uh, is an article by Cheryl Hodgkinson Williams and Henry Trotter um, in the journal Open Praxis. And it's a social justice framework for open educational resources. Uh, and they look at uh, various dimensions of social justice and what it means to, to do this work in a way that is merely ameliorative versus what is truly transformative. And, mm-hmm. and it's an open access published article. And for me, that is literally the most important piece in mm-hmm. this space at the moment. Yeah, good. Thank you so much. Wow. We have to roll this back and get all those titles. <laughs> <laughs> Rajiv, you you obviously hold a very significant uh, uh, office at KPU, and you you do have some influence, and and, uh, I know I follow you on Twitter, and and even talking with you today, I'm I'm very honored to to share this space with you and look forward to what's going to happen in the future. Um, But Rajiv, as as we end all of our podcasts with this one question, 
Um, I want to ask you this with, with all gentleness and respect in the sense of, uh, I know how humble you are, but what impact do you want to have in the open space? It's a hard one. And I'm sorry to, to sort of go back to the premise of your question just a little bit, but I mean, there's a real difference between you know, what you do and how people perceive what you do. Um, and there's so many of us who will use work off the side of our desks, sweating, bleeding, because we believe in this stuff. So, you know, I'll say there's very, there's, yeah, the, the, I would never try to confuse the, the position that I'm lucky enough to hold right now with, um, the value that I bring to the space. Um, but, um, sorry, just to come back to your, to, 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 to your question. Could you repeat that again? Sure. What impact do you want to have in the open space? Yeah. Well, I suppose there's internal and external. I mean, for me, I have several several hopes. One is that you know we're able to, given that KPU is, is has the leadership and the grassroots interest to do this at the moment, that we're able to model what's possible. Um, in a way that really demonstrates for institutions, while this is not just a thing that's a passion project, this makes sense. This supports access. This supports student success. This supports pedagogical innovation. This uh, argue argue with me about how an institution should not be doing this, uh, and, and it will be a difficult argument for you to make. So for me, I want to really have KPU be a model for what's possible. Um, that's a big part. But the other part is very internal, which is that. You know, you want to be able to have a sense that what you're doing is not just, um, it's right. And you're doing the right thing in the right way. You're trying to uh, make it easier for those who follow. You're trying to ensure that the future of this of this country is um, more equitable. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it, whether we're talking about gender equality or other forms of discrimination. I mean, this is part of our society. And for me, education is one of the most important tools that we can wield in this space. Um, it is it is, it is, is a calling for sure, but it is incredibly important. So I think for me to be able to have a sense that, you know, I did everything I could. Um, and if KPU can inspire other institutions, if the people I work with and who are emerging as leaders in open education at KPU can inspire other practitioners, um, if suddenly this work becomes normative, where it's not a question of, you know, why are we doing this? Um, it's a question of why the hell are we not? How, how can we possibly responsibly proceed with higher education without open education? That for me is, is the question that I want people to be able to ask. Awesome. Thank you so much. Chad, last questions? Well, I, no. <laughs> I, you, I can't after that. There's That was very well yeah. said. I really appreciate that. Thank you, Rajiv. Yeah. Very good. Actually, I do have one last question. As we as we go out, I notice you still have your ukulele on your desk. If you want I to do. play us out, that would be fantastic. Sure. <laughs> I'll, ask, I'll finish with a little corny joke as well. Since I'm a psychologist, can I ask you how many psychologists does it take to screw in a light bulb? How many psychologists does it take to screw in a light bulb? 
Well, as it turns out, it doesn't really matter how many psychologists you have. The light bulb has to want to change. <laughs> and with that, my friends, I will leave you. Thank you for your time. Thanks for inviting me.